Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. We're having a chat about the people on Australian money, the faces that we see every time we open up our wallets and our purses to pay for, uh, well, to pay for pay for anything—a snag at Bunnings, or uh, some printing at Officeworks, or uh, I don't know, a, a toaster at the uh, at the good, good, good guys. Pay cash and they'll slash the prices. Man, I. I really got to work on getting paid for all this free advertising I'm doing. It was it was Ubisoft and Assassin's Creed last week. It's the good guys. And I'll tell you this: I could I could do with some stuff from the good guys. I'm going bald, so you know I'll need I'll need a hairdryer pretty soon. I'm realizing that this is absolutely incomprehensible to the international audience that's tuning in. Sorry about that, everyone. But also to the international audience listening, you. Uh, I bet you probably know just about as much uh, about the people on Australian money as the average Australian does, to be honest. So uh, we're all going to learn something today. Um, Like countless uh, nations all around the world, Australian money is, uh, geez, what what is it, decorated, I guess? I don't know. I I guess it counts as decoration, doesn't it? What, What else would you call it? I don't know. Anyway, like so many other countries, our money, it has famous... Figures from our history on it, right? This is what uh, adorns our uh, our paper money. Uh, but I'll be honest, they're not actually that famous, and I don't reckon most people could even name them, let alone say why they're famous, why they're on the money in the first place. So today, we're going to fix that. Um, think of the friends that you'll make at parties as you as you explain who Edith Cowan and John Flynn were. Amazing. Um all, although, then again, maybe maybe you're just making friends because, you know, you're pulling 50s and 20s out of your pockets like they're nothing either way. People are listening to what you're saying. That's the point. So uh, so that's good. So here's the agenda for this week. First, we're going to talk about Australian money a little bit. We'll, uh, we'll go over a brief history of our monetary system, uh, how we move from the pound to the dollar, the various coins and banknotes that we've used over the years. And then we're going to get stuck into four of the five banknotes that we all use and talk about the people on them, uh, or I should say that we all use, most of us use anyway. I, I don't know who's chucking about hundos on a regular basis, must be very nice. But we'll get across them all the same, the hundo, the 50, the 20, and the 10, um, but we will, we'll, we'll just skip past the five, to be honest, because, uh, well, for those, for those who don't know, um, the, the Australian $5 note has Queen Elizabeth II on the front, and it has Parliament House on the back. Now... This is changing in the wake of the death of, uh, of Elizabeth. Uh, the Albanese government announced that when it eventually comes out, the new $5 note will have Indigenous art on it, which is an absolutely outstanding move. Um, there is 65,000 years of Indigenous history on this land, being around a lot longer than the British monarchy, so I'm a big fan of that. Um, in any case, look, we're not, we're not going to spend too much time in the five. Uh, we all know who Elizabeth is, and, uh, and Parliament House isn't a, a person, you know, and I don't want to get arrested for lying. The title of the podcast is people on Australian money, not buildings. I don't, I don't want to go to jail for that. So uh, so that's what we're looking at. We'll chat about the eight famous Australians on our banknotes after a brief history of Australian money in general. Um, and uh, a quick reminder, of course, that a broader history of money is available for your listening pleasure. Episode 110, Get Across It. There are some real stinkers in the back catalogue, uh, but that one, that's a, it's all right. It's a, Well, honestly, it's, it's a cracker. I'm very proud of that one. So uh, have a listen to it if you haven't already. And one final thing before we begin the episode here, I wanted to I wanted to put this up the front of the show rather than at the back because it is important. Um, uh, rather than with all the boring housekeeping stuff, we close out the show with. I, I want to let people know that um, I have had the uh, the good fortune to be selected as part of Spotify's Radar program this year. One of only three Australian podcasts in the lineup, along with uh, We Don't Have Time for This and the Tom and Frenchie podcast. I am stoked to be in such good company, of course. And I'm also very grateful and a little perplexed, I guess, that Spotify have identified identified my Tin Pot History podcast as an area of emerging talent, in their words. But look, hey, I'll take it. I'll definitely take it. If you're on Spotify, head over to the radar section of the app, either on your phone or your computer. Have a look at the other shows involved. They're all excellent, obviously. Um, and thank you to Spotify for in, for including me in the lineup this year. Also, thank you to new listeners who are coming in. Maybe you've discovered the show via Radar. You're giving it a shot. Welcome. By all means, welcome. Really is great to have you along. 
But the biggest thank you goes to all the returning listeners who are coming back for more. All the greedy little content piggies waiting for the next bucket of slop. And here it is. Aren't you lucky? Uh, No, look, quite seriously, whether you're a newer edition or a member of the half-assed history, old guard, been around for years, been here since the beginning, maybe. Thank you so very much for listening to my silly podcast. I quite literally could not do it without you. Uh, Anyway, that's enough of that. Let's get into it here. Let's have a chat about the people on Australian money. Very long intro today. Very long episode coming up. Apologies for that. But here we go. Seatbelts on because we are off. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 14th of February, 1966, when the Australian dollar was brought into being officially. Prior to this, Australia had used the Australian pound, had done so since 1910, when various interchangeable colonial currencies were brought together properly, unified as the Australian pound, uh, just one of very many changes brought about by Australian Federation, a full history of which you can hear in episode 240, get across it. Anyway, um, the Australian pound, like the colonial money that went before it, was initially pegged one-to-one to the British pound before eventually being devalued by 25% in 1931. So you're thinking, okay, yep, sure, that makes sense. One British pound was then worth one Australian pound, you know, in Australian pounds, 125. No, no, not at all. Because the pound wasn't decimal back then. One pound wasn't made up of 100 pence. It was made up of 20 shillings and a shilling was 12 pence so there were 240 pence in a pound so ridiculous um it meant that one british pound was worth one pound five shillings in australian money of course easy as anything why why did we ever leave behind such an intuitive system Well, we did leave it behind, thankfully, in 1966, after years of deliberation and negotiation over the the decimalisation process, uh, we replaced the Australian pound with the Australian dollar, one dollar being made up of 100 cents, a decimal currency like most are these days. Um, Interestingly, um, at one point, Harold Holt, the Prime Minister who drowned, so we named a public pool after him, episode 241, History's Weirdest Death, part three, get across it. Uh, Holt suggested the new decimal currency be called the Royal but people hated it, so we went with the dollar instead, and not as fans of the Simpsons uh, would uh, may may believe uh, the dollary do. We did not call it the dollary do, although I think I would prefer it to be called the dollary do over the royal. I, uh, I think uh, I think many Australians would agree with me on that one. Anyway, in 1966, we had our first decimal coins and banknotes. The coins have remained relatively unchanged, to be honest. Started with the the one cent, two cent, five, ten, and twenty cent coins, uh, all of which featured Australian animals on them. The one cent and the two cent were copper. Uh, the one cent had a little feather tail glider on it. The two cent had a frill neck lizard. Uh, and you'll notice I'm using the past tense to talk about these coins because they're not used anymore. They were taken out of circulation in 1991. Which is just as well, because the copper that went into making a one cent coin uh, is these days worth three cents. Same with the two. A two cent coin has six cents worth of copper in it, which leads us to a very weird situation based on the value of the metals in the coins. A two cent coin is worth more than a five cent coin. Anyway, no more one cent, no more two cent coins, but the others, they're still kicking around. The five cent with an echidna, the, uh, the 10 cent with a lyrebird, and the 20 cent coin with a platypus. In 1969, three years later, we got the 50 cent coin. Originally, it was round and it was made of actual silver, uh, but the silver in the coin quickly became worth more than, than 50 cents. Uh, so they changed it to the same copper and nickel alloy that the other silver-coloured coins have through to this very day. And they also gave it flat edges. It is a dodecagon. It's one of very few 12-sided coins worldwide. And uh, for non-Australians who have never handled a 50-cent coin, it is comically large. These coins are so big, right? It's stupid. They're, they're Honestly, they're like bloody hubcaps. They're that large. Um, anyway... We, we didn't actually have dollar coins, right? So today we have dollar coins, $2 coins, uh, gold coloured. We didn't have them until the 80s. In 1984, the $1 coin was first minted, got a mob of kangaroos on it. 
Um, and then in 1988, we got the $2 coin. Very, very small. Uh, actually, the only smaller coin than the $2 coin is the $0.05 cent coin. Uh, confusingly, our most valuable coin is the second smallest coin. Um, and uh, it, of course, features an Aboriginal elder on it uh, with, the, with the Southern Cross in the sky behind him. Now, why did it take us so long to get dollar coins? Why did it, why did it take, you know, over 20 years for the full complement of Australian coins to be built out like this? Well, because... From 1966, we had dollar notes. We had one and two dollar notes uh, before they were replaced by the coins the, the year that the coins came out, 1984 for the, for the dollar note. It was replaced by the dollar coin, then 1988 for the two dollar note. Um, 1966 also saw other banknotes released, the first 10 and 20 dollar notes. Then two years later, the first five came along, while the 50 and the hundo, they weren't printed until 1973 and 1984, respectively. But uh, one of the funniest things about these old banknotes, right, they look very different from the banknotes that we have today. You can go online, you can look at pictures of them, but there, there is a very funny detail about one of these notes in particular, right? One of them, one of the blokes on, uh, it, was, it was almost all blokes back then, one of the blokes on the, on the 10, right? His name, uh, his name's, uh, he was a fellow named Francis Greenway. He's Australia's first ever government architect, but... Before Greenway was Australia's first government architect, before he even came to Australia, right, he was convicted. He was convicted of a crime. That's why he ended up in Australia. He was sent over here as a convict. And you will never guess what the crime was that he was convicted of. Greenway was, in fact, a forger. He was convicted of forgery, sentenced to transportation, and then ended up as a forger on our money, which I think is very amusing indeed. Anyway, these banknotes ultimately were done away with. They were replaced in the in the 1990s. But before we get to that, I want to talk about how in 1988, Australia changed the game when it came to banknotes because Australia, uh, Australia printed a, a special commemorative banknote in 88. And uh, this note was a world first. It was the first successfully introduced polymer banknote rather than being made out of cotton like so many banknotes still are to this very day. This special $10 was, as I mentioned, the, the world's first ever functional polymer note. Australia was well ahead of the curve there. Uh, more and more nations have, have, have picked up polymer notes since then, although there are some nations, some regions that are still stuck in the dark ages. The US dollar and the euro are still printed on cotton which is unbelievable. I mean, you might as well inscribe your money into clay tablets, mate. Why, why don't you carve your banknotes into a cave wall? Get, the, get with the bloody time, you turkeys. Anyway, um, this commemorative polymer banknote was soon followed by the official replacement of old cotton banknotes with new polymer versions, as I say, in the 90s, uh, starting in 1992, when polymer $5 notes were introduced. Then the 10s the next year in 93, 20s in 94, 50s in 95, and then finally 100s in 96. And these notes were bloody terrific. Let me tell you, uh, for a range of reasons too. Not only were they uh, were they polymer, right, which means that they're tough and hardy. It means you can uh, you can put them through the wash. They you know if you leave a, a banknote in your jeans pocket, no worries at all. It's going to come out on the other side uh, w- without being torn to shreds. That's fine. The only thing you need to worry about uh, if if your money goes through the washes. Uh, Getting done for money laundering. Oh, thank you. Uh, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's not just that. These, uh, these notes are also all the same height while being different lengths, which doesn't sound like much, but is an absolute masterstroke. The United States buggers this up by having all their banknotes be exactly the same size and colour too. Um, it's a nightmare flicking through the, the, the piles of ones you end up with just to, just to find a 20. And, and then the euro has the opposite problem. The, the five is absolutely tiny, while the, the hundred is essentially just a bedsheet. All of the banknotes are wildly different sizes. It's, it's, it's bizarre. But no, Australian money, uh, all the banknotes are the, the same height, but different lengths. So they sit in your wallet or your purse nice and neatly, but you can tell them apart based on how long they are. And they're also all very different colours, mostly. It's a, it's a little tough to tell the pink five and the blue ten apart when you're colourblind like I am, but, but again, the, the size helps. As does, you know, looking at the pictures and the numbers on them, which I'm fortunate enough to be able to do. So it's not, it's not a huge issue. Um, but these notes, they also had all sorts of new security features to prevent forgery. <laughs> Boring. No one cares about that. Whatever. I, I, I guess it's good so we don't have to worry about counterfeits, but that's not my favourite thing about these banknotes. My favourite thing about this new series of banknotes is that each of them represented a woman, 
on them as well as a bloke. Unlike the initial series, which had exactly two women across seven notes, and one of these women was Elizabeth II, um, all these new series, the, the, the second series, the polymer notes, they all had a man on one side and a woman on the other. Um, in fact, with, uh, with Elizabeth on the five and without a man on the other side of it, there, there are actually more women than men on our banknotes. Although I, I don't really consider that a victory for the bleeding heart lefty liberal feminist woke Arati because one of the women was, you know, a queen and also not even Australian. So it doesn't really count. But what was a victory for the bleeding heart lefty liberal feminist woke Arati um, was the third series of Australian banknotes, which started to be released in 2016 with a brand new five, then the 10 in 2017. Then we jumped to the 50 in 2018, then back to the 20 in, uh, in, in 2019, and then finally the hundo in 2020. And these new banknotes, very similar to the second series, uh, but they're better. They're, they're, they're better than ever, uh, in addition to boring stuff like more security features, um, in addition to keeping the balance between famous Australian men and women, these notes also have a little tactile feature in, uh, in one of the corners to help blind and visually impaired people tell them apart. So a great result for accessibility and inclusivity. Love it. A young teenager named Connor McLeod, a campaign for the change, and actually got it over the line. So good on you, Connor. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> There's another detail as well that I want to share about these uh, this third series of polymer banknotes uh, that is uh, just just truly excellent, um, and that is the fact that they somehow managed to misspell the word responsibility on the fifty. So check your wallets and purses if you've if you've got a fifty in there that was printed in the first run before they corrected the mistake. Have a look at the text just above Edith Cowan's shoulder, and in the second line you will see the word responsibility. Nice one, Reserve Bank. Maybe a bit less time punishing Australians with interest rate rises and a bit more time proofreading. Eh? How about that one? Anyway, this, uh, this third series of Australian banknotes, the second iteration of our, of our polymer notes, that brings us through to today. In 2023, there are obviously still some second series notes kicking about. You might have a couple of old 20s in your wallet. But uh, broadly speaking, these are the notes that we use in everyday transactions. The third series slowly but surely phasing out the second. But the reason we're here today, right, the reason we're here today is to talk about the people on these notes. Who are they? Let's kick things off then with the 10 here and have a chat about all of these famous Australians that we see in our bank notes. And again, as I said in the intro, we're going to skip the five. Uh, we'll skip Elizabeth and Parliament House. We'll leave them, neither of them being famous Australians. We'll uh, we'll get stuck straight into the $10 note. And we begin, we begin talking about the people on Australian banknotes with the bloke who is, I would guess, the most famous of all of them, Banjo Patterson. Andrew Barton Banjo Patterson was a writer and a poet, usually referred to as a bush poet, someone whose poetry and writing was mainly concerned with life in the Australian bush. And he penned some of the most famous works of Australian literature, including poems like The Man from Snowy River and the legendary Waltzing Matilda, which I think is fair to describe as Australia's unofficial national anthem. But my personal favourite uh, Banjo Patterson work of all of the uh, the poems and everything else that he wrote, uh, my favourite is a poem called Mulga Bill's Bicycle. It's about a bloke who buys rides and then crashes a fancy new penny farthing it is a very amusing cautionary tale and i used to love reading this uh, this illustrated version i had of it as a kid um a very funny story and uh, and something that uh, you may enjoy getting across uh patterson's work is is almost almost all of it's fantastic and uh, and you may enjoy it even if you're not australian it'll it'll give you a a, a unique insight into uh, some of the foundational aspects of colonial and post-colonial australian culture anyway patterson he was he was born on the 17th of february 1864 in rural new south wales the son of a scottish immigrant and an australian born english woman he lived out in regional Australia while growing up, developing a great love of horses before moving to the Big Smoke in 1874 to attend Sydney Grammar School. He became a lawyer, but while working in law, he also began writing poetry, which was published under a pseudonym, The Banjo, that's where he gets his nickname, in a literary journal named The Bulletin. His work became very, very popular indeed. By the 1890s, he was one of the star attractions of The Bulletin. He had a friendly rivalry with fellow famous uh, famous bush poet Henry Lawson, um, and in 1899, his uh, his writing and his uh, his, sta his his status as a writer was uh, was was so successful that he actually left his law career behind. He became a war journalist. He travelled to South Africa to write about the Second Boer War for the Sydney Morning Herald and for the Age. 
And over there, while in, uh, in South Africa, he met some other famous historical figures like author Rudyard Kipling and politician Winston Churchill, both of whom were also working as war correspondents at the time. He also covered the Boxer Rebellion in China. And he travelled extensively across other parts of the world, going all the way to the UK before returning home finally to Australia in 1908. But he was off again before very much longer, fighting in the First World War, working primarily with mounted units, again, given his, his love of horses. He rose to the rank of major and returned safely to Australia after the war ended, resuming his career as a writer and a journalist and, broadly speaking, living happily ever after, finally dying on the 5th of February 1941, just shy of his 77th birthday. And today, Banjo Patterson remains one of, if not the most famous of all of Australia's bush poets, famous both in his time and in ours. By the end of the 19th century, he was a household name in colonial Australia, and his work helped to shape the modern identity of this nation and the people that live in it. Patterson's romanticised depictions of life in the bush and the people who lived there strongly influenced Australia's developing national character. Australian bushmen were depicted as independent and tough, resourceful and resilient, but not too self-serious. Values that have, I think it's fair to say, stuck around in this country to this very day. His work, both poetry and prose, influenced Australian art for years after his death through his seminal portrayals of Australian landscape and nature, bush culture and people and life in regional Australia more broadly, Australian art and music and culture would look very, very different without the contributions of, of Banjo Patterson, and that's why he's honoured with a spot on the ten, surrounded by imagery invoking his famous poem, The Man from Snowy River. But let's flip over our $10 notes now and meet the lady on the back, Dame Mary Gilmore. Like Patterson, Gilmore was also a famous writer and poet who made an enormous contribution to Australian literature throughout her lifetime, writing prolifically in support of important topics like workers' rights, women's rights, and the rights of Indigenous people. Most of her work reflects very well on her indeed, and uh, for the most part, she is thoroughly deserving of her spot on the 10, as we'll discover as we talk about her now. Gilmore was born Mary Jean Cameron on the 16th of August 1865 in rural New South Wales and grew up both out in the country and in some country towns like Wagga Wagga, a real place for international listeners. It's east of Canberra. Uh, she became a school teacher, teaching in Wagga for a while before moving to Sydney in 1890, where she became involved with the growing labour movement there. She also wrote for the Bulletin. She penned fierce writings in defence of workers and the oppressed and was also at one point romantically involved with Henry Lawson, the friendly rival of Banjo Patterson. After a brief period in Paraguay, of all places, in the mid-1890s, she and other firebrand socialists followed a fellow named William Lane, who attempted to found a, ut a utopian socialist settlement called the New Australia Colony on the other side of the Pacific. Uh, it didn't work. Uh, we'll have to cover that in an episode at some point. It's, it's a very interesting story. Anyway, after this brief period in Paraguay, uh, it wasn't long before Gilmore was back home in old Australia, uh, although uh, she took the long way around. She came home via the UK. And throughout this entire time, she continued writing, writing and writing and writing. Uh, and once she was back in Australia, she rose to become the women's editor of a newspaper called The Worker, the paper of the AWU, the Australian Workers' Union, still around today. Uh, she was actually the first woman to join the AWU. By 1910, she had released her first full volume of collected poetry as a book and uh, was by this stage a, a very famous and well-known literary figure. She campaigned tirelessly with her writing for the rights of the oppressed and the downtrodden for workers, for women and children, and most notably for Indigenous Australians. It was not very fashionable to be in vocal support of Indigenous Australians uh, in the early 20th century. And uh, unfortunately, 100 years later, many people uh, today are, are still stuck with this century-old mindset. But Gilmore, she was out there. She was using her platform as a famous writer to advocate for Indigenous Australians. So good on her for that. But I do have to mention that she was also a very strong supporter of the White Australia policy, a shameful part of our nation's history and an unfortunate blemish on her personal legacy as well. For more information on the White Australia policy, episode 129, get across it. More people need to know the truth about a chapter of Australian history that we are all far too ready to ignore. Anyway, as the years went on, Gilmore became more and more of a radical lefty, even writing for communist publications. 
But despite all this, she still became the first person ever to be made a Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire for Services to Literature. So high was her standing in literary circles. And she continued writing for the rest of her very long life, publishing volumes of poetry and prose, contributing to the mythology of life in the Australian bush with a collection of memoirs, before finally, on the 3rd of December 1962, at the age of 97, she passed away. But even today, she is remembered not just as a gifted writer, but also as a passionate advocate for social justice, even if she was a bit, you know, racist. You you really can't win them all. Anyway, today, Dame Mary Gilmore is honoured on the 10 as a very significant figure in Australia's post-colonial history, someone whose work helped to shape and express the developing identity of nationhood that Australia was going through in the time around and after Federation. We move on to the 20 now, starting with Mary Reby, who you'll find on the front of the note. There she is in her bonnet and glasses, looking, uh, looking like a lovely old lady. She could be, a, could be a sweet old grandma or something, but let me tell you this, she was nothing of the sort. Reby was a merchant. She was a trader. She was someone who made an absolute fortune in the Australian colonial economy, someone who garnered a reputation as a masterfully successful businesswoman. It was hard enough for women in the 18th century from the outset, but uh, but here's what's even better about Reby's story. Even though she became a, a, a cutthroat businesswoman, right, she didn't come from wealth or privilege. She wasn't born with a bloody silver spoon in her gob, mate. Quite the opposite, in fact. Mary Reby was born Mary Haydock on the 12th of May 1777 in Lancashire in England uh, and was orphaned at a young age before running away and turning to a life of crime. Do you see where this is going? Do, do you see? One of Australia's most successful businesswomen started out in life as, yep, a convict sentenced to transportation. She was arrested in 1791 for horse theft and was sentenced to seven years transportation, arriving in Sydney in 1792. And while serving her time, she met and married an English naval officer, Thomas Reby. Thomas was granted a parcel of land northeast of Sydney. And once Reby had served her time, the two of them set up shop and built a farmhouse there. It's, still, it's actually still around today. Fascinatingly, it went up for sale in 2021. Uh, anyway... Thomas set up a cargo business that he operated with Reby's assistance as she raised their young family. And as, uh, as the business flourished into the 19th century, the trading company started taking on larger regional routes and then eventually international trade routes as well. Whenever Thomas was away, Reby would look after the business for him, which set her up in very good stead for when Thomas died in 1811. Reby inherited and took over the business herself, and over the next two decades saw it continue to grow to colossal proportions. Reby was one of the wealthiest people in the colony. She was admired and envied by many for her sharp business acumen and her constant growth and expansion of the shipping company. She bought ships and warehouses. She invested her wealth in land and property as well as supporting charitable and philanthropic causes. She helped with the construction of schools and, and hospitals. She supported the, uh, the poor and the needy. And her shipping business was a huge boon for the swiftly developing colonial economy uh, and helped maintain her position as one of the richest people in New South Wales, which is remarkable in and of itself, but made even more incredible by the fact that she was a woman. At a time, of course, when women were almost completely bereft of rights of any kind, political, economic, social, even human rights, Mary Reby, she still managed to establish and maintain her position as a wealthy and prosperous business magnet. In time, she wound down her involvement in business activities, and into the 1830s, she moved towards retirement, first settling in a cottage in Sydney's North Shore, before moving to a townhouse in Newtown for her final years. Reby died on the 30th of May, 1855, at the age of 78, starting out in life as a penniless horse thief, but then becoming a towering figure of wealth and prosperity in the economic world of colonial Australia. And that is reflected on the 20. Have a look and you'll see the ships and the warehouses that earned her her fortune just behind her. 
Flip over the 20 now and you'll meet John Flynn, a visionary who is most famous for establishing what would go on to become the Royal Flying Doctor Service, the first air ambulance service in not just Australia, but the world. Today, the Royal Flying Doctor Service provides emergency medical care to thousands and thousands of Australians across the country, all living in remote communities. Australia is so big, it is so bloody big that people living in the outback, they can be thousands and thousands of kilometres away from the nearest hospital. And so the Royal Flying Doctor Service does critical life-saving work for people out bush, and it all comes back to this bloke, John Flynn. Flynn was born on the 25th of November 1880 in central Victoria, and he was educated in Melbourne, becoming a teacher and then a priest. In the years after Federation, Flynn uh, spent much of his time organising and performing missionary work in remote communities, uh, which gave him a lot of experience with and perspective on the vast distances that separated people who lived in the outback from all the uh, the more developed and advanced services that, uh, that you enjoyed if you lived in the city. And, and specifically, uh, Flynn realised the desperate need that, uh, that Outback Australia had for medical services. And so he put his mind to how they could be provided. Flynn was a gifted speaker. He began to share the plight of those living in remote communities, telling stories like the story of Jimmy Darcy, a stockman at a cattle station in remote WA, who, when his bladder ruptured, had to be operated on by a postmaster at the nearest town, with a pocket knife. This postmaster was being instructed over telegraph by doctors in Perth. And this story was one of many that Flynn used to drum up support for using brand new technologies to provide people in the outback with proper medical care. Radio, for one, rather than telegraphs, but also aeroplanes. The idea to use aeroplanes came from a young fellow named Clifford Peel, a medical student who wrote to Flynn about providing medical aid via aviation. Poor old Peel was uh, was shot down and killed in the First World War. But the idea that he put into Flynn's mind would go on to become the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Across the 1920s, Flynn travelled around these remote communities across Australia, establishing radio outposts and transmitters to aid in communication and running test medical flights, such as one in 1926 when an injured miner was flown from Mount Isa to Cloncurry for treatment. And after these tests gave him an idea of what was possible and what it would, of course, what it would cost, Flynn, on his own initiative, planned out, organised, budgeted and fundraised for an air ambulance service. Wealthy industrialists were brought on board for funding. Qantas, the national airline, provided an aircraft for the service to use, although they charged for it. Even 100 years ago, Qantas was coming for every last penny. And by 1928, the Aerial Medical Service had been properly established. It only survived through the support of donors, volunteers and community fundraising, all of which is still a big part of its successor today, the Royal Flying Doctor Service. But the service flourished. It helped to care for the medical needs of people thousands and thousands of kilometres away from hospitals, people who otherwise potentially would be doomed. They would lose their lives without the urgent care made available to them with the world's first ever air ambulance service. Today, the Royal Flying Doctor Service operates 81 aircraft which fly over 73,000 kilometres and help hundreds and hundreds of thousands of patients every single day. It is Flynn's greatest legacy, something that he gave the rest of his life over to supporting right up until he died on the 5th of May, 1951, at the age of 71. And today, thousands and thousands of Australians living in remote communities live safer lives thanks to the pioneering work of John Flynn. And so it's only right that he's honoured on the 20 with the aeroplanes and the radios that made his vision a reality. We move now to The Pineapple, to the 50, and we meet David Unaiponi, sometimes known as David Unaipon, uh, an Indigenous inventor and author whose scientific research and innovations helped to challenge persistent stereotypes that white Australia had about Indigenous people. Unaiponi had a sharp intellect that he applied to both scientific research and to the invention of all sorts of different things, Uh, some of them very successful, others a little less so. 
Uh, and as you can imagine, he had to overcome a huge amount of discrimination and bigotry throughout his entire life and career, battling against the deeply entrenched prejudice that white Australia had, and in some unfortunate instances, still very much has, uh, against Indigenous Australians. Unai Pony was born on the 28th of September 1872 in a Christian mission in South Australia, southwest of Adelaide. He was educated at the mission school there and remained a very religious Christian throughout the rest of his life, but also evidenced himself as a very intelligent kid indeed. He left the mission school to work as a servant for a politician in Adelaide who thankfully encouraged Unai Pony to uh, pursue his love of knowledge. And uh, as a result, this young kid investigated everything from science to philosophy to music to literature. After returning to the mission for a few years, uh, where he developed his skills as a church organist, he returned to Adelaide again, but found he had enormous difficulty getting work due to his race. This bloke was smart, he was well-educated, he was knowledgeable in a ton of different areas. He could also rip off a tune on the organ like nobody's business, but he was immediately dismissed by white Australians because of his colour. He wasn't able to find work as anything other than a bootmaker, and eventually returned once again to the mission and worked there as an accountant, doing a bit of preaching as well. So not the most illustrious career for this poor bloke, but uh, I tell you what, he didn't let that get in the way of things when it came to his passions. Ngunai Pony spent much of his time working on various inventions, putting his scientific knowledge to work as he toiled away on all sorts of different ideas. Some were... Uh, a little, a little optimistic, he spent years working on a perpetual motion device, for instance, which is a bit of a wild goose chase at the best of times, and he didn't get too far with that one. He also got stuck into an anti-gravity device, uh, and again, we we haven't got flying cars yet, so old mate doing my pony didn't, uh, didn't cover too much ground there. But some of his other ideas... Absolute crackers. Like Leonardo da Vinci before him, Gnome Pony sketched out an idea for a helicopter, well before helicopters were a reality. Using the principles involved in the flight of a boomerang, Gnome Pony worked on a design of a flying machine that would be able to take off and land vertically. It didn't get off the ground, figuratively or literally, but if we're going to rave about Da Vinci's ideas for a helicopter well before their time, we've got to get around Gnome Pony for his as well. He worked on other stuff too, propulsion devices, motors, all sorts of things, but uh, his most successful invention was a brand new design for mechanical sheep shears. And the wool industry has historically been huge for Australia. We, uh, we made a lot of money off the sheep's back, and uh, even today, modern sheep shears are still based on Pony's design. Unfortunately, he got almost no credit and certainly no money for his innovations, and this lack of money meant that of the 19 provisional patents that he took out in his inventions, he wasn't able to afford the fees involved in having them fully patented. So a sad outcome there for Pony, considering that he was a very gifted inventor, but it wasn't just inventions that he was famous for. Pony was also a talented writer. He became the first Indigenous Australian ever to, uh, to be a published author. He wrote books on Indigenous legends and culture. He wrote articles for newspapers and magazines and journals. He wrote essays on his, on his scientific investigations into everything from ballistics to the polarisation of light. This bloke was a full-on Renaissance man, and he changed a lot of minds as he challenged the prejudicial stereotypes that much of white Australia had about Indigenous people. United Pony died on the 7th of February 1967 at the age of 94, leaving behind a legacy as, an, as a very important cultural ambassador for Indigenous Australia, helping to promote and lift up Indigenous voices and challenge harmful and destructive prejudices. So for that, in addition to all of the incredible work he did in the areas of science, innovation and invention, good bloody on you. Dave o old son, richly deserving of your place on the 50. But if you flip over your 50 now and have a look at the woman on the other side of it, you'll find someone else who broke a fair few barriers of her own. You're looking at the face of the first Australian woman to serve as a member of parliament, Edith Cowan. Cowan was a suffragette who fought tirelessly, not just for women's rights, but also for social reform in the realms of education and, and child welfare, you, you know that she's a bloody red-hot pistol just from the get-go here. So let, let's get into her story. 
Edith Cowan was born Edith Brown on the 2nd of August 1861 at a sheep station near Geraldton in Western Australia. Now, sadly, she was orphaned at a young age. Her mum died when she was seven and then her dad murdered her stepmum and was hanged for it when she was 15. So uh, a very unfortunate start to her story. But nonetheless, Cowan pursued her education, attending a boarding school in Perth and then seeking out private tuition after leaving school. And in doing so, she developed a lasting and lifelong passion for education, particularly for women's education. In 1894, Cowan helped with the founding of the Karakata Club, a women's club that focused on women's education and, of course, supported women's suffrage. And women got the vote in WA in 1899, the second colonial state to do so after South Australia. So the Karakata Club and the other suffragettes out west, they did a very good job of things, it seems. But she didn't slow down after this. Cowan continued to to advocate for social reform, particularly, as I say, for for women and children's welfare. She co-founded the National Council of Women in in WA. She was a driving force behind the construction of of buildings and and, and facilities like the the King Edward Memorial Hospital for Women in Perth. Uh, She also founded the Children's Protection Society, which worked to reform the legal system to better protect kids and establish things like children's courts. But then, when WA passed legislation that allowed women to run for public office in 1921, Cowan ran for a seat in the WA Parliament and she bloody won. Good on her, the first ever woman to sit in an Australian Parliament. And funnily enough, the bloke that she defeated in the election, Thomas Draper, he had been the one to introduce the legislation that allowed her to run. But he copped it. Fair dues. He's saying this is this is why these laws are here in the first place. So I can lose my seat to a woman. Anyway, Cowan used her position as a parliamentarian to continue to agitate for women's rights and won several key victories like legislation that allowed women to work as lawyers, um, uh, putting mothers on equal footing to fathers when it came to their children's affairs. And then after a defeat at the next election in 1924, Cowan returned to her work as an activist and served as an Australian delegate to the 1925 International Conference of Women over in the US and then helped to found the Royal Western Australian Historical Society in 1926. This woman bloody loved her clubs and societies. She she served on the boards of over 20 of them in her lifetime. But sadly, in, uh, in her later years, uh, Cowan's health prevented her from continuing her work, and uh, she died on the 9th of June, 1932, at the age of 70. But she remains one of the most remarkable women in Australia's history. Today, just under 40% of federal lower house members are women, but over 55% of our senators are women. And all of this began with Edith Cowan, the first woman to claim a seat in an Australian parliament on top of all the incredible work she did as a tireless activist for social reform, and that's why you find her on the 50. Finally, if you're the sort of person who carries hundreds around, must be very nice, get one out and have a squeeze at the front of it where you will find Dame Nellie Melba. Melba was one of Australia's first international celebrities. She was an opera singer, a soprano, and one of the best of her time, one of the most famous sopranos around the turn of the 20th century. Now, this sounds very boring to us today, you know, opera, no thanks, but in her time, Melba was the equivalent of a rock star. She was Australia's first global superstar. Melba was born Helen Porter Mitchell on the 19th of May, 1861 in Richmond, a suburb of Melbourne, greatest city on earth. I, I actually used to live in Richmond, just down from the brewery and all the all the Vietnamese shops on Victoria Street. Used to go to Loi Loi for a succulent Vietnamese meal with my family every now and again. Love it. Anyway, she grew up as the eldest of seven kids and quickly demonstrated a real aptitude for music, playing the piano and singing. As young as six years old, she was giving, uh, giving little performances for people. She went to PLC, Presbyterian Ladies College, out on the uh, out on the 75 tram. Used to see PLC girls uh, at Richmond Station on my way to school. Uh, although, as I went to Melbourne High, I, of course, only used to kick it with McGrob girls. Sorry, this is only interesting to people who live in Melbourne, and even then, probably not very. So let's get the uh, let's get the Queenslanders involved, shall we? Here, because uh, when uh, when Mel was around 20, uh, her family packed up and moved to Queensland, moved to Mackay. And Melbourne, her singing went off in Mackay, let me tell you. Not surprisingly, really, Queensland being the cultureless wasteland that it so proudly is, except for what, I don't know, 
Savage Garden and uh, oh and, and regurgitate. Everyone everyone loves a bit of, everyone loves a bit of the gurge. Uh, anyway, um, Melba's singing voice was was quite literally the talk of the town in Mackay, and uh, she ended up travelling to Brisbane. Had similar musical success there. But the siren song of her home city called her back before long, and in 1884, Melbourne moved back to Melbourne and began to perform professionally. Things are going very, very well for her there. So well, in fact, that she decided to take the show on the road and move to Europe. She travelled to London and then to Paris, where she was offered a 1,000 franc per year for 10 years deal. Seems great. Snap that one up. Absolutely brilliant. Um, Only for her then, a couple of weeks later, to be offered a 3,000 franc per month deal if she'd moved to Brussels. All the piss poor timing of an English batsman on that one, signing up for a 10-year contract for a, a pittance of what she'd be making elsewhere. But um, uh, very luckily, the bloke who she signed on to for 10 years solved the problem very considerately by dying, allowing Melba to uh, to move to Brussels and get the big bucks. It was at this time she took her stage name Melba, naming herself after her home city. Love it. And uh, went from strength to strength, not just in, in Brussels, but uh, on bigger European tours as well, in, in London and Berlin, and Milan and Vienna. She was a sensation. People bloody love listening to her. Rave reviews in the papers, but people can't get enough of her. And she's living the high life. I tell you what, she had an affair with uh, with a French nobleman, the Duke of Orléans. She toured the US throughout the 1890s. She became one of the most celebrated opera singers in the world. She finally returned back home here in 1903, doing a performance tour across Australia and New Zealand. And it wouldn't be her last. Despite being based in London in, in, until the 1910s, she routinely toured Australia and would often go and visit tiny little regional towns as well as the big cities. She seemed to remain very fond of Australia, despite it, you know, not really at this stage being as uh, culturally refined as the higher society of the London Opera Houses. Um, although I, I did, I did find it funny to read uh, how she she went after Adelaide in particular. I mean, who can blame her, really? Uh, she described Adelaide as a <clears throat> a city of the three P's: Parsons, pubs, and prostitutes. I don't know, maybe maybe our Adelaidean listeners can chime in and, and, and tell me how right she is with that uh, with that summation of, uh, of, of their city. I, I don't know. Anyway, she was in Australia during the First World War where she supported the war effort with tireless fundraising and then resumed her international tours into the 1920s. But then towards the end of the 20s, she's in her 60s by this stage, Melba started to think about retirement. And uh, in what would uh, become a, a proud tradition for famous Australian musicians – performed a whole heap of last ever farewell concerts, just like old mate Johnny Farnham did decades later. Just just farewell concert after farewell concert. Oh, this one's going to be the last one. Oh, actually, no, check the bank bank balance. I, I, I will do one more after all. I wish the bloody locksmiths had uh, come back and performed a last ever concert. Bloody hell. Anyway, her, uh, her last ever, her actual last ever performance was in London in 1930. And I'm sorry to say she really wasn't well at this stage. She, uh, she really wasn't in good health. Uh, and sadly, after returning to Australia in 1931, she died in Sydney on the 23rd of February, 1931. Australia has produced incredibly famous global superstars over the years. Nicole Kidman, Hugh Jackman, Kate Blanchett, Kylie Minogue, and also, of course, a bunch of Kiwis that we claim as our own, like, I don't know, Russell Crowe, Keith Urban. But the very first of them all was Dame Nellie Melba, our first international celebrity, a legend in the operatic circles of the late 19th century and early 20th centuries. And for that, she's on the hundo. The young girl from Richmond who shot to superstardom, delighting millions around the world with her incredible musical talent. You can jump on Spotify once you've gone through the, uh, you know, the radar playlists. You can type in Dame Nellie Melba and have a listen to a couple of her old recordings, but I don't know. I don't want to take anything away from the old girl, but uh, she's still not still not as good as Tame Impala, though, is she? I mean, let, let's get let's get Kevin Parker on the hundo, mate. Come on. Anyway, let's flip over our imaginary hundred dollar bills here and chat about our final historical figure for the day, Sir John Monash. Monash is famous for his work as a military commander. During the First World War, he served as the commander of the Australian Corps as we gave those bloody bastard Huns a proper shellacking. 
And uh, generally speaking, military officers during the First World War were pretty bloody useless. They weren't good at their jobs, high-ranking aristocratic idiots who couldn't identify the sharp end of a bayonet, but not Monash. Today, he is widely considered one of the most talented generals to have fought in the First World War. Not just for Australia, not just for the Allies, but full stop. This bloke was very good at what he did. Monash was born on the 27th of June, 1865, in West Melbourne, the son of a young Jewish couple who had emigrated from Prussia uh, in part of uh, what is today now Poland. They moved to Richmond. Uh, Seems like a a lot of notable and important Australians grew up in Richmond. How about that? Where's my bloody banknote, mate? Put me on the 200. Anyway, his family moved to regional New South Wales for a while. Monash claimed to have met Ned Kelly during this time, so it's 2021, get across him, uh, while he was living out there in in, in Geraldry. But before long, they moved back to Melbourne to give young Monash the best shot at a first-rate education because he was a very clever kid indeed. He had a lot of grey stuff between the old ear holes there, which is a great shame because they sent him to Scotch College. So, I don't know, all he would have learned there is how to nick his dad's credit cards and get him a pingers. Anyway, he ended up graduating as an engineer from the uh, from the University of Melbourne. Uh, these days, there's actually a university in Melbourne named after the bloke. There's Monash University. So for some reason that wasn't around when he was a youngster. Very puzzling indeed. Anyway, no, he did very, very, very well at university. Um, graduated uh, as, a, as a civil engineer, working away for almost two decades between 1895 and the outbreak of the war. But that wasn't all he did, because he also joined the Army Reserve in 1884 and slowly but surely worked his way up the ranks. By 1913, he was a colonel. And when the war broke out in 1914, he accepted an appointment as a full-time officer. He was given command of the 4th Infantry Brigade, uh, which caused quite a stir, let me tell you, uh, for two reasons. One, this bloke was German. His German heritage was uh, a bit of a factor in sending him off to war against the Germans. He grew up in a German household, speaking German, you know, the, the, the child of German immigrants. But also, of course, because of pervasive anti-Semitism, something that Monash's success as a military commander helped to fight off in Australia. This bloke had plenty of people think less of him because of his Jewish heritage, and there were plenty of people who didn't want to see a Jewish man put in charge of, uh, of, a, of, a, of Australian forces like this. They didn't want to see a Jewish fella uh, given such a, a high-ranking military post. But all the same, he had the backing of the top brass, and so the appointment stood, and he remained in charge of the 4th Infantry Brigade and was sent off to fight over on the other side of the world for, uh, for King and Empire. He fought in Egypt, and then he fought in Turkey at Gallipoli. He was uh, promoted to Brigadier General and then transferred to the Western Front in Europe. In 1918, he was promoted again to Lieutenant General and made the commander of the Australian Corps. And uh, by this stage, he had well and truly and very deservedly gained a reputation for extreme effectiveness. This bloke's sharp intelligence and his background as an engineer aided him in putting together operational plans that were extremely high quality. His thoroughness and preparedness meant that he rose to be recognised as one of the best in the business, silencing even his anti-Semitic critics, along with the people who didn't think the child of German parents should be leading the fight against the, you know, Germans. But no, Monash Monash was a a red-blooded Australian. He led his boys to a series of decisive and important victories on the Western Front, helping to finally breach the Hindenburg Line and secure the German surrender. And in doing so his reputation increased even further. The troops that he he led absolutely bloody loved the bloke. Apparently, he was charismatic and likable. And even the British officers that he worked with were blown away by this bloke. British Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery described him by saying, I would name Sir John Monash as the best general on the Western Front in Europe. With the war over, Monash was showered in medals and awards from all the Allied nations, and he was promoted to full general by the Australian Army. He oversaw the repatriation of Australian soldiers, returning himself to Australia in 1919 to a hero's welcome. But his work wasn't over. He went straight back to engineering. He held multiple notable roles in public organisations and even helped to design and plan the Shrine of Remembrance, a, a huge war memorial in, uh, in, in Melbourne on, along the end of St Kilda Road. Notably, and happily, Monash's incredible success as an Australian hero during the war, as I say, helped to fight off anti-Semitism in our young country. Our greatest war hero was Jewish, and people wouldn't hear a word said against him 
And look, while I'm not trying to claim that anti-Semitism doesn't and never has existed in Australia, because that certainly isn't true, Monash's standing as one of the biggest and most important military heroes that Australia has ever had helped to fight intolerance of Jews in early Australian society. And today he's on the hundo, but he's also got so much other stuff named after him as well. Monash University, Monash City Council, the Monash Freeway, Monash Medical Centre. There's a, a suburb in uh, suburb in Canberra as well named Monash, so whatever. They, they can't all be winners. But his legacy continues through to this very day, recognised as Australia's greatest military leader with a spot on our most valuable banknote. And that, my friends, is that. Those are the eight Australians that you'll find in our banknotes, and those are their stories. A quick recap and summary now to help you remember. We've got writers on the 10, Banjo Patterson, the bush poet, and Dame Mary Gilmore, the firebrand socialist. We've got a businesswoman and an innovator on the 20, Mary Reby, the merchant, and John Flynn, the founder of the Royal Flying Doctor Service. We've got a scientist and a politician on the 50, both people who broke very important boundaries, David Ngnipony, the inventor, and Edith Cowan, the, the parliamentarian and activist. And then finally, we've got a celebrity and a general on the 100. We've got Dame Nellie Melba, the opera singer, and Sir John Monash, the war hero. So now you can go forth and impress your friends and humiliate your enemies with your newfound knowledge of the stories behind our currency. Think of the admiration you'll gain for yourself when you, I don't know, start talking about John Flynn while, you, while your mate's trying to pay for a slab at Dan Murphy's. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans, in what is one of the longest episodes I've ever published. Those are the stories of the people on Australian money. And I do hope you enjoyed it. Um, I'm interested to hear from both Australians and non-Australians as to how interesting this episode was. I imagine for Australians, you know, just being armed with a little more knowledge, knowing who those faces are on the banknotes, being able to fill an awkward silence maybe with a, with a quick anecdote about someone like Edith Cowan or Mary Reby. Maybe that's going to do you a favour. But for people overseas, I don't know, learning just a few little snapshots of Australian history, I hope it, uh, hope it was something that you, uh, you at least enjoyed. And uh, look, more, more generally, always very happy to hear back from, from listeners, whether it's topic suggestions or feedback. I do. I, I love reading through all the emails. I get, I get tons of them every day. And I'm sorry I can't reply to them all. It's just, it's just, there's just too many of them. Some of them, um, it's funny when some of them are addressed to the half us history team. It's just me. There's no, it's it's just me. The, this is a this is a one-man band, so I do apologise that I don't have time to uh, to get back to your emails. But I read every single one and I research all the ideas that are sent in. So if you've got a if you've got a topic suggestion, I would love to hear it. Um, I'm really looking to get stuck into some some more Australian history. Love to do some Kiwi history as well. I've been trying to line up some stuff uh, for for all the Kiwis that are listening. I do see you in the stats over there on the other side of the Tasman, and I want to get stuck into some of your country's history. The issue I'm having is I don't have a very deep and thorough understanding of the relationship between uh, the, the the colonizers and the settlers and the indigenous people in in um, in New Zealand. So if you've got any suggestions as to how best to educate myself about that sort of thing so I can talk about things like the musket wars and the, the Treaty of Waitangi and, and all these other things, I would love to, uh, I'd love to be sent some ideas as to uh, what I should read, some resources that I could get across to educate myself so I can, so I can deliver some, some Kiwi history because, you, you know, you're sitting over there, you don't have much going for you over there. What, you've got your boiling mud, you've got your, uh, you know, your, your beautiful scenery and your progressive social policies and all the rest of it. It sounds like an absolute nightmare. So, you know, if I can brighten your day with a little bit of Kiwi history, I'd love to do that. So, Kiwis, this is a call out to you in particular. Send in what I should be uh, should be getting across to educate myself and uh, and maybe we'll come back with some history from Aotearoa before too, uh, too much longer. Anyway, I'd like to thank everyone for listening, particularly all the new listeners coming in. Maybe you've discovered the show via radar. It is really, really excellent to have you. Thanks for sticking around all the way to the end. And the good news is, an absolutely massive back catalogue for you to get across, what, 250, 200, 275 episodes for you, to, for you to sink your teeth into, although some of them, yeah, some of them aren't very good. Anyway, I'll leave that for you to decide. Um, but if you want to support the show, there are a couple of ways you can do it. Of course, you can go and uh, grab yourself some merch. Uh, and if you've got ideas for merch as well, I'm keen to hear your ideas, uh, send me an email. The, the, the best way to get in touch, of course, I didn't mention, halfhousehistory.net. The contact form is there on the website you can use to, to write in directly. Uh, or you can go to patreon.com slash history and uh, support the show directly there. And uh, in doing so, gain access to all sorts of stuff, starting with uh, ad-free listening. 
uncut episodes, show notes, early access, all sorts of stuff going on there, and exclusive Patreon-only merch. The only way to snag yourself that merch is via Patreon. Once again, a very deep and heartfelt thank you to all listeners, old and new alike, for being part of half Ass History. The show is going a bit bonkers at the moment, and uh, I'm a little overwhelmed, but I'm also extremely flattered. I'm having uh, all sorts of conversations with all sorts of people that I never expected to have about the future of the show, and uh, I'll I'll be updating people on uh, some of the very exciting ideas that I've got cooking up into next year for the future of Half-Assed History. Uh, But again, as I said at the top of the show, couldn't do without you. So thank you very, very sincerely for contributing to the the ongoing success of this uh, this Tin Pot History podcast. Anyway, back next week with more nonsense. Until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit, of course. This one comes to us from RWS1030, who asks, If money doesn't grow on trees, why do banks have branches? (laughs) 